Welcome to Montgomery Talks. We're here this time with uh, Council Member Craig Rice. Um, you've been in office, gosh, this will be your third term, correct? That's right. That's right. So, oh, and so I guess at the end of this term, you got to decide what you do next, I suppose. That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. Lots of uh, decision making uh, there, certainly. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the first thing I want to talk to you about is um, there's been some some news between the county and Apple Computer. So tell us what, what's going on. Well, it's really exciting. It actually started with last year to where we had a summer program that it actually started uh, with Apple in other cities, including Chicago. Uh, and it was called Chicago Can Code. And it was Montgomery College who first came to us uh, with this concept and said, we should do something in Montgomery similar to what we saw happening in Chicago, this great partnership between uh, Chicago and Apple and working with a lot of our uh, disconnected youth, a lot of our youth that uh, are underserved in, our, in, in their communities and getting them involved in coding. Uh, and so we said this would be a great opportunity for Montgomery County to do the same thing. And so led by our Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation, Montgomery College and Montgomery County Public Schools, we had a little over 100 students that participated in this great program. It was over three weeks called Montgomery Can Code to where we took kids from Title I schools, uh, brought them in, worked with Apple uh, programmers as well as programmers from Montgomery College and taught them how to code and design their own applications. And it was really exciting. They brought me in as one of the guest judges uh, to hear these students present about these different kinds of apps. And they blew my mind. I mean, it really was amazing. In fact, one of the young ladies who presented, uh, who was dealing with an app that was an organizational app, said, OK, so my only question to you is, where do I go next in terms of how to sell my app? And this is a person who had never, ever coded before, had never even thought about designing apps and was already thinking about monetizing and the economic development opportunities that she had as a young person about what to do with this app now that she designed it. And that really is at the forefront of what Apple's methodology is around empowering uh, people to be able to take control of their lives through the use of technology. And so we saw this as a great opportunity uh, for us to try and expand on that opportunity. And so uh, a number of us had an opportunity uh, to go out to Cupertino recently to meet with Apple executives to talk about how we could expand this program. And so we're very excited to announce, and you're the first to hear this, that uh, we're actually going to be expanding the Montgomery King Code Initiative to over a thousand students this year. Uh, and so this is a huge increase uh, it's certainly one of the largest expansions of the Ken Code movement uh, throughout the nation. Uh, and so certainly is very promising for a lot of young people who will have this opportunity. We're also looking at building on it uh, Ken Code 2 uh, so that for those people who have already gone through it the first time, they can actually take the next iteration of this coding uh, kind of workshop to be able to take their apps and app development to even farther heights. So um, a thousand kids, again, from Title I schools or from any school? Title I schools is where our primary focus is. That's where Apple likes for us to focus as well. And with their support, with us purchasing additional uh, iPads to be able to support them in this initiative, uh, we wanted to be very strategic about the schools that we choose as well. And so we'll be announcing that a little bit later on this year or uh, in the beginning of next year about what those schools are and then opening up slots for them to go ahead and get them signed up. But this is already underway as we speak. 
And again, this will be a summer program? This will be a summer program. It's actually uh, it started off as a half day. We're actually going to do it full day, uh, which is very exciting as well. And so they'll have even more time to be able to devote to this during that uh, three to five week period. We're actually looking at expanding beyond the three weeks to a possible five week program also. So uh, the school system and the college have been incredibly supportive. MCEDC is looking at getting some of our companies engaged and involved as well uh, to make sure that if there are things that companies are looking for in terms of app development, they may be able to work with the students in terms of making those things happen also. Okay. And you say it's going from three weeks to five weeks, three weeks at half day, Five weeks at full day. Exactly. Wow. And a it's a huge kids. investment. Huge investment for us at both the Montgomery College and uh, MCPS level uh, when it comes to money, uh, but certainly well worth it when we know uh, the benefits that this would mean for our kids. And how much is Apple chipping in? Uh, Apple is actually not chipping in money at this point. They do personnel support. So they're actually doing people. So they actually have their staff that come in and do the support for uh, Montgomery College staff. Um, what we've asked Apple in terms of their investment uh, is in working with us on Apple iPad purchases. Uh, and so working on discounts for those, as well as helping us with some of the future app development and uh, being able to send some of those and give those students support if they wanted to take it to the next level of trying to pursue it with our Apple, with Apple Store. Okay. And um, and you say this is going to be a significant investment. How much money are we talking? We're talking roughly about a half a million dollars um, overall. So, you know, not when you compare it to the size of the school system's budget or to uh, Montgomery College's budget, isn't that significant, but it is a significant amount of money uh, and shows the investment and the belief we have in th- what this program can accomplish for us. Mm-hmm. And how old are these kids? Uh, these kids are in middle school and uh, at, at right now, uh, and then we'll be looking at exposing some of our high school students to it, as well as some of our elementary school students. We just haven't figured out what that right cohort of those other proponents is just yet. Oh, okay. With this information, once they go through this program, does this provide any sort of, of uh, well, you have high school students. So does it provide any high school credit or is this um, just purely extracurricular? Well, we're talking about actually certification. So the folks who actually uh, go through the first are in the first step. So they're actually SWIFT 1 at the basic level. Um, if, as you get into SWIFT 2, you actually start certification. It's actually marketable to where you could actually do and work under the auspices of that certification. And so from that perspective, for the people who've done it the first time and then come back for the second, would actually have a marketable skill that they could actually be employed uh, and actually do some things, whether it's internships or whatever the case may be. They're not full-fledged programmers at that point, uh, but certainly ones in which they could actually do a little bit more in terms of that coding. And so our objective is to actually take this to a program that actually gives them a pathway all the way through to becoming a programmer, okay. including Montgomery College. Now, you mentioned SWIFT. SWIFT is the programming language. That That's correct. That's and um, the certification would be given to 13-year-olds? Absolutely. The certification is open to anybody. There's, there's no age restriction wow. in terms of certification. As long as you can pass uh, the requirements, uh, you can be SWIFT certified. And so there are a lot of kids right now. In fact, the very interesting thing that I learned as we started exploring the Montgomery Can Code initiative is we have a company uh, that just started up called Code Ninjas. And Code Ninjas is actually working, they're in Germantown, uh, working with young children in elementary school. 
and teaching them the basics of coding. And they actually have some people who are actually certified at the end of elementary school in, in, in beginning level coding. I mean, this is an exciting thing for us as we see kids that are so uh, into video games uh, and wanting to play them, but so many are now understanding that they can also design them as well. And Swift has brought such a new dynamic being that it's more user-friendly in terms of its analysis of how the functions work. Uh, the loops that are necessary are much more in- integrated with our common language and are a lot easier to understand than previous programming languages. And so from that perspective, the Java's of the world and all of those have been eclipsed by this new sort of uh, methodology when it comes to programming. And so it's really making it easier for a lot of kids to be able to grasp those programming concepts. That's amazing. Okay. Um, So the other thing we want to talk to you about today um, this isn't a great segue, but the other thing we want to talk to you, it's also education related. At <laughs> Absolutely. Least. Um, and that's the Kerwin Commission. Yes. The second report for the Kerwin Commission is out, correct? It is. There's been some controversy over how this, uh, this, the recommendations are going to be funded. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking, uh, was it $3 billion? That's right. $3 billion worth of new programs – um, that they're that the commission is calling for, and there's no funding source. That's right. So first, obviously, we want to talk about the funding source, but f- talk about the recommendations. What exactly are the recommendations? Sure. So the recommendations are broken into five categories. The first of them is early uh, childhood education, uh, focusing on pre-K, uh, making sure that all children have the best start they can uh, to a strong educational future one in which we know highlights and exacerbates the achievement opportunity equity gap that we see in our schools. Uh, We know that when it comes to the deserts for these high quality early childhood education uh, centers, uh, they're, they're in certain areas that are more affluent and in a lot of other areas, they're not at all. And so uh, from that perspective, we've got to make sure we're growing that so that our children start with the same level base in playing field. Uh, Then it comes to working with our children that are at promise or at risk. Uh, It's one in which giving more resources for those students who need it the most, uh, making sure that when it comes to mentorship and tutoring, when it comes to making sure that we have wraparound services that extend outside of the classroom. One of the arguments that people oftentimes make about the criticism for investment in education is that, well, children aren't in school all day. Uh, They spend the majority of their time outside of the classroom. And that's true. And so if we're really going to create a system that supports the whole child, it's got to be one that addresses the mental health of the child. It's got to be one that makes sure that the parents are well supported in terms of the information that they need to help their children to be successful. All of those things are embodied in this report. And oh, by the way, for those who think that we have a discipline problem in our schools. There's some of that in there that's well, because we know that kids act out for certain reasons. Uh, Either it's something that's happening at home, uh, something that's happening internally with themselves that they don't like. And those are things that are helped by building these true community schools. Uh, Third, when it comes to our teachers, obviously our teacher cohort is incredibly important and we need to make sure that teachers are paid commensurate with the level and expectation that we have of them of what they need to do with our children. And so from that perspective, it's obviously working with them uh, to make sure that we have a career ladder that reflects the work and investment that they're putting in at becoming the best teacher they can for our children, but then also holding them accountable. 
uh, and making sure that folks just don't stagnate, uh, that folks have incentive to keep moving and keep retooling themselves so that they can be the best and the brightest minds when it comes to the new and innovative ways in which to reach our children and educate them. Uh, Fourth, when it comes to making sure that we have a governance and accountability model, uh, ensuring that folks uh, always are understanding uh, uh, that when we're investing money, uh, we have to make sure that it's going to the right places. The Office of Legislative Oversight report that we just recently did in Montgomery County that talked about money following the child and making sure that the results are commensurate is incredibly important. And then fifth, uh, making sure that we have uh, CTE, uh, career and technical education, something that for a very long time we shied away from and said, no, we don't want to prepare children for those technical careers uh, that are out there, whether it's cosmetology, mechanics, whatever the case may be. And the reality is, is that now we import the majority of our electricians that work on construction sites here in Montgomery County from the state of Ohio. That's how bad it's gotten. And so it really is important for us to make sure that we're doing a better job when it comes to bringing in uh, and growing uh, that new workforce for tomorrow. I should back up. I should say this at the outset. You're not only the chairman of the Education and Culture Committee for the for the council. You've been serving on that committee or, or its its predecessor for, I guess, your entire time on That's the council. Right. That's right. And you also serve on the Kerwin Commission. That's right. So, um, That's right. And I chair the Education uh, Subcommittee for the Maryland Association of Counties, representing all 24 jurisdictions in the state as well. So it's safe to say you know your stuff. <laughs> I try. I'm trying to find a headline I saw on my Facebook feed this morning from the uh, the event you were just at, the council, the committee for Montgomery Breakfast, uh-huh. um, and I thought the headline said 40% of Montgomery County students do not have college edu- college degrees, and that there was a problem with that. And mm-hmm. I I didn't see I, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I right. only saw the headline, but it seems to me that's. What you just said about CTE education, they're looking at the from the wrong end of the telescope. That's right. I mean, 40% could mean that actually it doesn't sound too bad right. if that 40% is found some other way to be productive adults. That's exactly right. And, 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 and so I think it's a part of the discussion that's missed. Um, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's something where we need to find out where that other 40% went and that they're in jobs that are sustainable and jobs that were uh, careers that they wanted to go into that they find fulfilling, right? And so that's the next part of that conversation is certainly to figure out, so we understand that they chose not to go that direction and take the college pathway, but are they having sustainable jobs that are providing for them and giving them what they need to be successful? And certainly from that perspective, we feel as though a large contingent of those folks, including my wife, who never went to college and got her cosmetology license in high school and now owns her own salon in downtown Bethesda. Those are the folks that we're talking about who can be incredibly successful uh, if we give them the support necessary to follow those career pathways. Well, and if I was a smart 16-year-old, 15-year-old think, looking at my future, uh, becoming an electrician so that you don't have to go away to Ohio to hire somebody, <laughs> um, of course, at 15, I probably wasn't that smart, but but I assume that, you know, it's Montgomery County. Some of those 15-year-olds have to be that smart. That's right. I'll, I'll just give you a very quick example. Um, we work with an organization called Conservation Corps that takes young people who've been involved in the justice system, off, oftentimes who've been disconnected from high school, get them to have their GED and then go work in sustainable jobs. 
Well, one of the young men who is a part of Conservation Corps is actually one of the youngest crane operators in the Maryland region. Started off as a 20-something making $65,000 a year as a crane operator. A lot of people don't know how much crane operators make. It's a very high, highly skilled job and requires a lot of training and particulars. And this young man is doing that. And again, he was a high school dropout. A person who once was presented with an opportunity is now able to be incredibly successful. And oh, by the way, doesn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars in college debt as well. I mean, I think that 40 percent that didn't go to college are probably going to be uh, far better citizens. There you go. At least least they're going to be able to pay their taxes. There you Um, go. So let's get back to, so, so how did you come to, to the conclusion that these are the five things you need to work on? Well, so, so what we did is we looked at uh, high-performing countries throughout the world. Uh, I actually had the unique opportunity to go and travel to Xi'an, uh, China, and uh, Taizhan, South Korea, and had an opportunity to look at their systems, meet with their ministers of education, uh, talk to them about their structures, look at it uh, for myself and see the success uh, that they had. And start to understand. And then we used our uh, National Centers for Education in the Economy, NCEE, uh, as a consultant to help glean some of that information that we got. But we didn't only look worldwide. We also looked internally nationwide and looked at Massachusetts and the Massachusetts model, one that has been incredibly successful at raising uh, the the level of performance. Uh, Massachusetts right now, I think, ranks around number nine in the world. Uh, when it comes to education, if it were its own separate country. And so from that perspective, they've been able to accomplish some great things in the state. But one of the very interesting things that they weren't able to accomplish is to eliminate the gap. And so Massachusetts, in its model that we looked at, uh, had some things that were very different, including the resources for at-risk youth uh, and some of the focus on early childhood education. And so with that, Massachusetts has actually opined that our new system, this new blueprint for education, is actually something that is better and should get at the other pieces that Massachusetts missed in terms of its reform. Right. Well, um God, I could spend an hour on the achievement gap, but um, <laughs> I want to talk first about uh, where, where's the $3 billion going to come from? Sure. Where is it going to come from? Well, you know, look, our, our, our state is a very affluent state. And the reality is, is that there are a number of sources in which we can utilize uh, to get to that money. We heard some this morning at the committee for Montgomery Breakfast espoused by uh, Delegate Corman and Senator Zucker, uh, who talked about the fact that Um, We still, back in 2007, during the special session of which I was a part of, uh, left a huge amount of money, billions of dollars on the table when it came to sales tax on services. Uh, That's something that, again, a lot of people don't realize that they don't pay because when they go, especially to a place that has a register, so a point of sale, uh, like your mechanic, uh, your auto mechanic, if you looked at your bill, you would see a tax line there. Uh, The reality is, is that Although there's a tax line there, the tax is only on the actual products themselves. So when you go in for an oil change, we tax the oil. We tax the oil filter, but we don't tax the service. But people still think they're paying tax on their entire thing. Why would we not tax that entire service? When you go to a hair salon, you're paying taxes on the actual products themselves that you may purchase, but you're not paying a tax on the services. Why are you not doing that? So a lot of places where we have registers to where people are automatically assuming that they're paying tax on it, We should be doing that. But even those that don't have registers, if we're talking about things that are already progressively priced uh, when it comes to gym memberships, 
uh, lifetime fitness memberships range in the amount of $100 or more per month. Or you can go to Planet Fitness or something like that for $15 a month. So taxing something like that actually makes complete sense. It's a progressive structure already innately just on how they've developed it as an industry. Uh, But at the same time, there's huge amounts of money that are left on the table when it comes to these entities. No one is going to say, oh, because you're charging me a tax on working out, I'm now going to stop working out. And a lot of those companies, because of how they've structured their pricing, will probably eat those costs. If they're marketing a $10 or $15 membership, they're not going to change it to $15.80 because of a tax that's implemented. Uh, And so those are the kinds of things where I think that we have money that's out there. Gaming, of course, is one where we left huge amounts of money on the table when we expanded the table games and gave, you know, our concessionaires a huge windfall of money. Uh, And then there are a number of other smaller sources that are out there, including uh, marijuana and others that folks have espoused. So there's so many different things that are out there, Doug. Honestly, um, it's easy to come up with kind of combination of them together. The hard part is figuring out what those things are. Are you going to get any sort of funding source through this governor? I would hope that Governor Hogan, who says that he's pro-economic development, would understand that you can't have economic development without investment in education. It's incredibly important. Uh, There isn't a single company who locates anywhere in the world who doesn't look at their education system before they locate there. Uh, It's one of those where even the employees themselves will then look at the education system and decide whether or not they want to go to that particular company based on where they are. Um, These are things that are no-brainers. And so it's kind of befuddled me a bit as to why this governor is resistant. Uh, He's seen the numbers. He's seen the polling numbers that have come out when it comes to investment in early childhood education. He believes in CTE. Uh, He believes in career and technical education and believes that Maryland isn't doing enough. And so from that perspective, I'm just confused as to why this governor would not be supportive of these initiatives that address many of the things that he cares about that are priorities for him. Well, I would imagine if I get to speak for the governor, I would imagine he's going to say I I ran on no new taxes and he's done his best to fulfill that. And there's no way he can come up with three billion dollars without either doing drastic cuts in existing services or increasing taxes. And he's not going to go for that. And I think that the people of Maryland understand, uh, just as they chose to elect a Republican governor, even though Maryland is a solidly blue state, that folks need to adapt to the changing environment. This is a case in which the state needs to adapt to this environment of understanding that we've got to have a renewed focus and a shift in terms of our education system. And that costs money. And I think that the Maryland voters understand that and that are supportive of that. And so I would hope that our governor is not just tied to a campaign promise, but more importantly, is tied to where uh, this this uh, state is and where his constituency is, which is understanding how much of a priority this is for all of us. Okay, these this proposal looks and quacks and walks a lot like Thornton, Mm -hmm. um, which was, what, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Spend a lot of money, send it to the legislature, and they don't really have a funding source for it, and we'll worry about it later. Sure. Um, Of course, we had slots right around the corner Mm -hmm. where folks figured slots for tots, we'll take care of it that way. You rattled off a lot of 
funding sources that could be could take care of this. Mm-hmm. But are we going to go through this again where it's going to be passed and there won't be money for it and then we'll be kind of cornered into raising either legalizing marijuana only because we want to fund this or adding a, a service tax only because we have to pay for this or are we actually going to do, do the due diligence and actually kind of think about this first? You know, that, that's one of my fears. And I hope that and the General Assembly seems to be signaling that they're ready to do the work necessary to figure out a way to make this happen. I do think that it's incredibly important for us to tie these two things together. The current commission was not charged with identifying a funding source. I would have been more than happy to have taken that on. Uh, we talked about that at the very beginning. Uh, when we were first assigned this job and said, should we be talking about this? Should we be taking up the mantle of funding sources? Because I've got ideas. You know, I sat there during the special session and saw many of them when I was in the state legislature myself. I was the one who raised my hand and voted to raise the sales tax from five cents to six cents on the dollar here in the state of Maryland. Uh, But I don't recall companies that moved out as a result of us doing that. Uh, I don't recall us immediately plummeting into this uh, period of where companies said, I'm not going to do business in the state of Maryland. Oh, by the way, Marriott you know, International, who is headquartered right here in Montgomery County, who doubled down in terms of their world headquarters being here, hasn't said, oh my gosh, this 6% sales tax is going to drive us out. Lockheed Martin, uh, the list goes on and on of the big, huge companies that are here Uh, not just in our state, but in this county. Uh, And so from that perspective, uh, do I think it's a heavy lift? Anytime you raise taxes, it's a heavy lift. But we do it all the time. And we do it all the time because our constituents know uh, that these go for good causes. This isn't just for something just to raise taxes. This isn't just because we think we need to just pump more money into government. This has a very delineated approach in terms of where this money is going. And I will say that the difference between what happens with Kerwin and what happened with Thornton is Thornton didn't have the policy behind it. What Thornton said is, let's throw money at the problem. What we've said is that was the wrong approach. Thornton, and all due respect to Alvin Thornton and the folks who were there, we did need additional money uh, to be infused into the uh, school system. The problem was not all of it went to the right places. And so from this perspective, now we have an opportunity to actually be very targeted. We have national leaders and world leaders who are saying this is a model that they would like to see implemented in their own countries, in their own areas, in their own states. And this is why, again, I think that we need to be a leader. We need to be a thought provoker uh, in terms of that this is a way for us to really change the paradigm for an education system. Uh, And so my hope is that folks will have the courage and foresight uh, to really make the tough decisions and roll up their sleeves and figure out how to make Kerwin come to fruition. Sounded like a stump speech. Which... No comment. Well, (laughs) well, that is a much better segue to the next couple of questions I want to ask is, uh, who do you like for... uh, have you picked uh, somebody to run, uh, to support in 2020 for president? I have not. And one of the reasons and one of the reasons I, I'm actually still waiting to I haven't heard anybody talk about education. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. We talk about uh, free college 
but we haven't talked about K through 12. We haven't talked about early childhood education. We haven't talked about that kind of policy. We always talk about healthcare. We always talk about defense. We always talk about all the things, but the reality is, is that the federal government for years, for decades now, has not fully funded IDEA funding, uh, nor a Title I. Uh, And so we've languished at about 16% when the government promised, the federal government promised 40% for all of our states. And so from that perspective, we have not done enough at the federal level. And so I'd like to see a presidential candidate who's talking about doing more when it comes to education. Uh, And I haven't heard that yet. Just talking about free community college, the reality is the people who benefit from that are the people who can afford it. Uh, the people who uh, really need it the most, it's still not going to give them what they need. And we need to do more when it comes to K through 12 education to really get them the opportunities, not just to go to community college. They should have options to go anywhere. And so if you really want to change and turn the system on its head, it's not just about giving something free uh, to folks. It's about making sure that the equitable policy of being able to go anywhere and being able to afford to do that should be where our focus is. Okay. How about 2022? Who do you think ought to be the next governor? You know, um, the next governor for the state of uh, Maryland should be a person who's a centrist, uh, who understands that we have to have people all working together on all sides, uh, understanding that economic development and education go hand in hand, understanding that transportation involves mass transit as well as roads, a person who understands that the environment is not an enemy of development, Uh, bringing all of those sides together uh, as a convener is where we need to go next. Um, The governor pitched uh, a good idea of trying to do that, but he hasn't made that happen. He'll claim to you that he's reached across the aisle, but if you ask anyone who's across the aisle, they'll tell you uh, that's not the case. And it's, it's modeled by the simple fact that Britt Kerwin, the chair of the Kerwin Commission has reached out to the governor multiple times to ask to meet with him to discuss some of the issues that he had with the Kerwin Commission recommendations and been rebuffed. I myself, as the leader of MACO's education subcommittee, have reached out to the governor and asked the governor for a meeting to sit down to identify things that we could do differently as a part of the report that would elicit the governor's support. Been rebuffed. That's not what a person who reaches across the aisle does. A person who reaches across the aisle is a person who, within MACO, gets all 24 jurisdictions to come together around support of the Kerwin initiatives and figure out a way to have everybody, from rural to western to urban, all coming together and saying, this is a policy we need to move forward. That's the kind of governor we need. Okay. Well, who is that? That's still to be determined. Okay. Is that person available, though? I, I, I think that person's out there. There's no question. Okay. Are they in the legislature? Are they somewhere else? I'm, I'm sure they're around. <laughs> okay. All right. um, and do you have a pick for the Congressional District 7 race? No. You know, um, it, was, it, was, it, it was very surprising. Uh, and, and I think it caught us all off guard. And so from that perspective, you know, we'll see uh, what, what, what happens. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that are lining themselves up. And so, you know, but I, I don't have a dog in that fight. Yeah, well, yeah. it's far away, but yeah, it's it's it, the number of candidates is amazing. It, it, it's it's one of those. Well, if you think about it, I mean, it's kind of like our county executive race uh, <laughs> or our county council race. race. Yeah. You know, it's um, one of those where when you have an open seat, people see an opportunity. I, I would hope that people aren't doing it just for the opportunity. 
and they really are committed to making change. One of the things that I think is problematic with us in elected office is we have too many people who just want to seize opportunities and see it from that perspective instead of a person who's committed to doing the work, a person who's always wanted to see change happen in their community and then actually want to roll up their sleeves and make that change happen. Those are the kinds of elected leaders that we need now more than ever, Uh, folks who are committed to doing the work that's necessary to really bring about that change for everybody, bring us all together. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mr. Rice. I appreciate the the conversations. Thank you very much, Doug. It's been awesome. I look forward to coming back and talking to you more about many other things that are going on. Excellent. Excellent. Um, This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. Our engineer today was Carolyn Ruskowskis. Join us next time.